Our scripture reading is taken from the book of Psalms, Psalm 30. Let's give careful attention to the public reading of God's words. It's found in Psalm 30, a psalm, a song for the dedication of the temple of David. I will exalt you, Lord, for you lifted me out of the depths and did not let my enemies gloat over me. Lord, my God, I called to you for help and you healed me. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. Sing the praises of the Lord, you his faithful people. Praise his holy name. For his anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. When I felt secure, I said, I will never be shaken. Lord, when you favored me, you made my royal mountain stand firm. But when you hid your face, I was dismayed. To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. What is gained if I am silenced? If I go down to the pit, will the dust praise you? Will it proclaim your faithfulness? Hear, Lord, and be merciful to me, Lord. Be my help. You turned my wailing into dancing. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy that my heart may sing your praises and not be silent. Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. Let's pray. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your word, which is truth, and who has called us to engage in the study of that word. We pray that you would now sweeten this psalm in our hearts and our lives that together we might grow in our knowledge of you and ourselves and the world that you have made, that we might more enjoy the calling that you have given to us, that we might honor you more along the path of life, praying in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Be seated, please. Well, last week we looked at a lament. We looked at Psalm 13, uh, a psalm that teaches us how to articulate those Uh, dark nights of the soul, as theologians call them. Well, this morning we want to ask the question, what do we do in response when God hears and answers the prayers that we offered to him when we were lamenting, and God, in the language of one psalmist, takes our feet out of the miry clay and puts us back on solid ground? What do we do when God reverses our circumstances And in short, what we do is we sing a song of thanksgiving. As I've said before, there are three kinds of psalms in general. There are psalms that we sing hymns of praise when all is well. There are laments that we sing when that proverbial rug is pulled out from under our feet. And then there are songs of thanksgiving when God reverses our circumstances, hears our prayers, and restores us from whatever difficulty we were facing when we were lamenting before God. And we're looking at one of those psalms of thanksgiving this morning, which I would call, Joy Comes in the Morning. Uh, Turn to Psalm 66, verse 16, for just a moment. Psalm 66, verse 16. And there the psalmist says, Come and hear, all you who fear God. Let me tell you what he has done for me. 
This psalm articulates a song of thanksgiving in its original context in the temple. The psalmist had been in trouble, had prayed to God, uh, had made a vow to God, if you get me out of trouble, I'll do a number of things for you. And one of the things that he said he would do is he would go back to the, to the uh, temple and he would offer a todah. Now, a todah has two meanings. Todah means um, a thank offering, and it also means a thanksgiving song. And while offering the thank offering, the psalmist would sing the thanksgiving song, and the thanksgiving song would recite for anybody who was around what trouble the psalmist was in, how the psalmist had asked God for help, and how God had come to his aid. Uh, Do any of you know that old uh, song, Stop and Let Me Tell You What the Lord Has Done for Me? Does that ring a bell with anybody? You're probably a former Baptist if it does. (laughs) I remember that we used to sing that uh, when I was a young child growing up. And on Sunday evenings, we had testimony services. Anybody know what testimony services are? Uh, Where the... uh, we didn't have like Presbyterian elders in our churches that exercised quite as much, you know, authority in the life of the congregation. It was a little more free flowing where I grew up. And um, so the, 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 the microphone would be given on Sunday nights to anybody who wanted to testify. Now, I know there are problems with that. There are dangers. I've been there. Because it can become, you thought your situation was bad. Let me tell you how bad mine was. I know there are dangers, but there are also good biblical precedents. That's what the Psalms of Thanksgiving are. They're testimony times. As the psalmist says in Psalm 66, come and hear all who fear the Lord. Stop and stop what you're doing and let me tell you what God has done for me. It's a song of thanksgiving. And so we're going to look at Psalm 30 as a psalm of thanksgiving. Now, typically the Psalms of Thanksgiving uh, start by reciting how the psalmist was in trouble. And if we don't read them carefully enough, we might think that a Psalm of Thanksgiving is actually a lament. Because the Psalms of Thanksgiving are going to rehearse the trouble that I was in and how I prayed to God. But unlike the lament, they're then going to go on to give God thanks. Todah. In in modern Hebrew, if you want to say thank you, you say todah. If you want to say thank you very much, you say todah rabah. It's the same as the todah, the thank offering in the Thanksgiving song, todah. That you, you are going to say thanks to God in public. And the way you say thanks to God in public is by telling other people your story. You're sharing your testimony. Um, and uh, so that's what this is doing. It, it has that movement in it. Now, the psalm that we read actually kind of doubles up that movement. In, in verses 1 to 5, we really have a complete song of thanksgiving. Verses 1 through 3 talk about how the psalmist was in trouble and how the psalmist uh, prayed to God and asked for help. And then verses 4 and 5 Give God thanks for the deliverance that he had experienced. The psalm could really end right there. Uh, one to three, I was in trouble, I prayed. Four and five, thank God he delivered me. But instead of stopping right there, the psalmist repeats everything, but he does so with additional detail. And so in verses six uh, through ten, he goes back over the trouble that he was in and how he prayed to God. 
And then in those last two verses, 11 through 12, he goes back over. Praise God. Thank God, because he got me out of the trouble that I was in. So there's really a a reduplication of the pattern uh, of the um, of the song. Uh, You know, uh, as, as a side note, not only ancient music, but modern music follows patterns. And you probably know that one of the greatest um, blues artists passed away this week, B.B. Uh, King. So I put on my Facebook page uh, a couple of my favorite B.B. King pieces. Um, but but 12-bar blues, which is my favorite, uh, if, if, you, if you just Google um, 3 o'clock in the morning, it's quintessential B.B. King blues. But, but you'll sing a line and you'll repeat the line and then you change the line. And then you sing a line, you repeat the line, and then you change the line. Then you give all the instrumentalists a little opportunity to solo, and then you, re- you sing a line, you repeat the line, and you change the line. There's a pattern. And, and songs of Thanksgiving have their own pattern. Now, if you listen to enough 12-bar blues, you know that there's a lot of uh, poetic license taken with that pattern. And the same thing is true in Old Testament Psalms. There's a pattern, but these are poets. Uh, They're not mathematicians. They're poets. And so there's a flexibility in poetry that you don't get in algebra. In algebra, you can't change anything. You can't move one parenthesis or the thing doesn't work anymore. Uh, whereas in poetry, you have a flexibility. And so what the poet has done here is he's taken the rhythm of the psalm of thanksgiving and he's reduplicated it. Well, that kind of um, repetition was common to ancient Israelites. It's not quite so common to us. And so usually when I preach, as you know, I kind of just walk our way through a text. But I'm going to actually reorder this text today. Um, And and what I want to do is kind of pick various pieces out and put them in a different order. The order I want to put this text in is the order of David's experience. So eliminating the repetitions, we just want to listen to David tell us what his experience was like. And he's going to tell us this experience in four stages. So let's look at each one of those. Now, the first stage, I'm going to call this one a misdirected sense of security. David starts with a misdirected sense of security. That started with divine favor. Look at verse 7. Going back to Psalm 30 and verse 7. Notice David says, Lord, when you favored me. David's story starts by talking about a time when he was under the favor of God. Now, we've talked about favor before. We know that favor is an attitude of God, a favorable attitude, but favor is also action by God on our behalf. Like when I say, would you do me a favor? I'm not just asking about your attitude. I want you to go into action for me. And so David is saying, God, when you favored me, you had a favorable attitude toward me and you were doing favorable things for me. It was, a, it was a great time. That's where David's story starts. It starts with that idea of favor. Then notice also in verse 7, um, my translation, the, um, the NIV says, 
You made my royal mountain stand firm. And I'll bet if you're reading a translation other than the 2011 NIV, your translation says something else. Uh, It's a difficult Hebrew line. And as I've looked at all the translations, there's one translation that hits the nail on the head better than any other translation with regard to this line. And that's the New Living Translation. The New Living Translation said, says, you made me as secure as a mountain. See, when you favored me, what was my life like? It, uh, an image that would come to our mind happens to be one that's used by a certain insurance company. Yes? You, what would we say? You made me like the... See, it wasn't even hard, was it? You made me like the rock of Gibraltar. I'll bet you can even picture the logo. You can picture the rock of Gibraltar, even if you've never been there before. It's just this image of strength and stability and firmness. Nothing can shake the rock of Gibraltar. That's what David is saying. You favored me and my life was just like the rock of Gibraltar. That's where David's story starts. Oh, but then if we back up just one verse, we get this this subtle slide into human presumption. Verse 6, you see, when I felt secure, well, no wonder he felt secure. He was under the favor of God. Not only was God's attitude good toward him, but God's actions were favorable. His life was like the rock of Gibraltar. No wonder, he said, when I felt secure. So he has this very deep and profound sense of security, which, by the way, is a good thing, isn't it? Very good thing. He says, when I felt secure, my translation says, I will never be shaken. Again, I I love the New Living Translation on this one. The New Living Translation says, when I was prosperous, I said, nothing can stop me now. It is so easy when we are under the favor of God, when our life is like the rock of Gibraltar, to begin to presume, to begin to presume upon the mercy and the grace of God. Uh, Not trust in it, but presume upon it. And, And there's a difference. One time, I might have told you this story. It always sticks in my mind. One time when I was in college, I had a Volkswagen station wagon. Great car. Lived in Pennsylvania. The engine was sitting right over the rear wheels where the drive was. We could drive that thing anywhere in the snow. Uh, And if it got stuck, you just pick it up and move it. Great, great vehicle. Well, I was one Sunday night after some outing at the church, I was backing up in the dark and my door was open so that I could look out this way. My rear wheel hit a rut. The door went down. It jammed. And once I closed it, I couldn't open it back up again. So as a college student, no money. For like six months, I climbed over the gear shift, over the other seat to get out the other side of the door. Well, one time I picked up one of my professors who was walking home from college and uh, he got in the car and I was telling him this story. And he must have been from like Scotland or Ireland because whatever he said sounded real godly with that accent. You know, he just said, you shouldn't presume upon the grace of God. In other words, get your door fixed. 
Well, the reason I didn't get it fixed is because I didn't have any money. So I immediately went to a body shop, pulled in. I'm not joking. The guy took a crowbar, stuck it in, pushed it one time, and my door was fixed. That's all it took. He didn't even charge me. Six months, I'm climbing over the gear shift to get out the other side of the car. For what? For one minute and a push on a crowbar. Oh, well. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Wonderful chapter. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but just look at verse 12. Verse 12 says, When you eat and are satisfied, when you build fine houses and settle down, and when your herds and flocks grow large and your silver and gold increase and all you have is multiplied, Then your heart will become proud and you will forget the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. Now jump to verse 17. You may say to yourself, my power and the strength of my hands have produced this wealth for me. But remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And so confirms his covenant, which he swore to your ancestors as it is today. It is so easy when our lives are like the rock of Gibraltar to forget God and to say, my power, the strength of my hands, nothing can stop me now. That's what happened to David. That subtle slide into a misplaced security. Feeling secure is not bad when those feelings are rooted in the right place. God as our mountain, God as our refuge and strength, God as an ever-present help in time of need. But when we make that subtle shift to presuming upon the grace of God and finding our security in ourselves, not in the giver, but in all the gifts then we're starting to slide downhill. And that's where David's experience began, this misdirected sense of security. What happened next? The hidden face of God. If we go back to Psalm, uh, if we go back to Psalm 30, and we look at verse uh, 7 again, notice at the end, second half, But when you hid your face, and in preaching on the ironic benediction, the Lord make his face to shine upon you, the Lord turn his face toward you. We talked about the hidden face of God and how the hidden face of God is an image, not of God's favor, but of God's disfavor. God no longer has that favorable attitude and that favorable action. That's what David is talking about here when when he says, when you hid your face. And what David experienced in particular is what we would call a near-death experience. Look at verse 9 in the psalm. In Psalm 30, verse 9, David says, What is gained if I am silenced, if I go down to the pit? Pit is common vocabulary in the psalms and in the Old Testament for the grave. Will the dust praise you? The dust From dust you came, to dust you will return. 
And so David has, uh, is experiencing something that brings him right to the brink of death. Now, in Psalms like 30 and Psalms like 16, it almost sounds as if David had actually died. But David hadn't died. He was just, he would, it's kind of like what we would say, he had one foot in the grave. He was gravely ill. Uh, He was deathly ill. He was just really, really close to death. The hidden face of God. We don't know the circumstances, uh, but David is using this language of being very, very close to God, a near-death experience. And what did he do in this near-death experience? Uh, He cried out to God. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, he says, Uh, Lord, my God, I called to you for help. Verse 8, he says, To you, Lord, I called. To the Lord, I cried for mercy. Verse 10, Hear, Lord, and be merciful. Lord, be my help. See, he repeats how everything was going well, but he slid into this presumption God pulled the rug out from under him. He had this kind of near-death experience. And in that situation, he kind of returned to his right mind and he called out to God. Very reminiscent of the experience of Jonah, yes? Remember how Jonah had, uh, Jonah had fled from the will of God? And ironically, Jonah was going over the sea to get away from God. But when the sailors ask him, who are you? He said, I'm the guy that worships the God who creates and controls the sea. Uh, What he's doing makes no sense. Uh, And then the sailors throw him overboard. You see, he's going down to the pit. He's going down to Sheol, down to the realm of the dead. But he calls out to God like when he's on his way down for the third time. And again, if you read that poem in Jonah chapter 2, it sounds as if Jonah had actually died and gone into the realm of the dead. Uh, But he hadn't actually died. He, He was near death and he cried out to God just like David cried out to God. And in all of these patterns, the Holy Spirit is just instructing us uh, in terms, see, see, because the Psalms of Thanksgiving not only give us an ability to praise God, they also teach us how to respond back there in those times of lamentation when things aren't going well. And they teach us to lament and to cry out to God in particular, to plead to God for his mercy. That's what Jonah did. That's what David did. Uh, after this uh, uh, misdirected sense of security, uh, the uh, David, Jonah, they, you, me, the experience of the hidden face of God when we feel as if God's turned his back on us. We're looking at our circumstances and everything in our circumstances says God doesn't like us anymore. God's not doing anything for us. Everything that God is doing is against us. Now, we know the word of God teaches us otherwise, but that's how we feel. And as we, if we learned anything last week, I heard, hope that we learned that when we feel that way, say it. That's how we feel. That's how David felt, as if God had turned his back 
on David. So first, a misdirected sense of security. Second, the hidden face of God. And in that experience of the hidden face of God, David cries out for the mercy of God. And so what do we read in the third part of David's experience? The restorative mercy of God. He experiences that mercy. Remember that? I don't know why. I listen to a lot of older music coming down. Maybe that's why I'm thinking about all these old hymns. Uh, Mercy there was great and grace was free. Pardon there was multiplied to me. There my burdened soul found liberty at Calvary. Mercy was great and grace was free. And that's what David had experienced that restorative mercy of God. He comes back from the grave, so to speak. Uh, Look again at verse 3. You, Lord, brought me up from the realm of the dead. You spared me from going down to the pit. I had one foot in the grave. I was almost down for the count. But I cried out to God for his mercy, and what did I experience? I experienced that restorative mercy of God. You spared me from going down to the pit. You brought me back up. And then the language of reversal that makes this psalm so beautiful and so uh, heartwarming. That language of reversal that's repeated in verses 5 and verse 11. His anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Anger contrasted with favor. A mere moment contrasted with a lifetime. Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Weeping contrasted with rejoicing, a night contrasted with the morning. Verse 11, you turned my wailing into dancing. It's, the, the wails are gone and the dancing has come. You removed my sackcloth and clothed me with joy. Sackcloth would be something like wearing heavy wool in Florida, on a sunny day, at the end of August. That's sackcloth. You, you removed that and you clothed me with silk and linen in about mid-May when it's in the mid-70s and there's no humidity. The great reversal, beautiful language of these great reversals that took place. Why? Because your God is a merciful God. David experienced the restorative mercy of God. And then what's the last part of David's experience? The last part of his experience is this deep sense of gratitude. Thank you. Todah. That's what this is. The song is a todah, uh, along with the offering of a todah. It's David's deep sense of gratitude. That, that in spite of him presuming upon the grace of God, 
in spite of him sliding into that misdirected sense of security, in spite of the experience of feeling like God had abandoned him, in spite of all of that, when he cried out to God for mercy, he found God's arms wide open like the prodigal son returning to the father. He finds his arms wide open to embrace him and said, let's celebrate because my son who was lost has been found. That's what David experienced. And what else could he do but express this deep sense of gratitude, which doesn't quite come out as well in English translation as it does in Hebrew, not even in the New Living Translation. In, at the end of verse 4, I'm reading the NIV. In uh, the end of verse 4, it says, praise his holy name. I think if you're reading something like a New American Standard or an English Standard Version, it has something like, thank his holy name. Uh, if, you, if you move on a second time, and that is at the end of verse 9, will the dust praise you? I think all of our translations use the word praise there. But like in verse 4, so too here, the word is todah, the word is thanksgiving. And if you look at the end of verse 12, Lord my God, my translation says I will praise you, but the Hebrew word again is todah. So sometimes, it, it, remember what Hebrew, remember what our English teachers taught us. Repeat your vocabulary, no, vary your vocabulary so you won't be boring. And Hebrew mother said, repeat your vocabulary, how else will they get the... Message. So our English translations tend to use different words when in Hebrew there's just one word repeated three times. Todah, todah, todah. Thanksgiving, thanksgiving, thanksgiving runs through this psalm because it's running through the veins of David. He is so grateful for that restorative mercy of God. And how does the psalm start and stop? It starts and stops with a dependent exaltation. He's exalting God at the beginning, at the end, because he has come back away from that misplaced sense of security depending on himself to depending on his God for everything that he is and for everything that he needs. At the beginning of verse 1, notice he says, I will exalt you, Lord. For you lifted me out of the depths. And at the very end of verse 12, he says, uh, Lord, my God, I will praise you forever. So you see, David just says, stop and let me tell you. Uh, And he's not just telling you so that he can exalt himself and say, my situation was worse than yours, so my testimony is better than your testimony. What he's saying is, stop and let me tell you. What the Lord has done for me. I developed this misdirected sense of security. Oh, it is so easy to do. And when I made that mistake, it was as if God turned his back on me and nothing was going right. Also, if you have time this afternoon, um, uh, YouTube B.B. King singing A Sinner's Prayer. Now, there are a couple of versions one of my favorites is, is on a, an album from um, 
um, Ray Charles, Genius Loves Company, when Ray Charles and B.B. King are doing a duet called A Sinner's Prayer. And they're talking about that slide into the hidden face of God. Uh, an interesting one on YouTube is also, though, uh, and this really surprised me. How many of you know Bruce Willis? How many of you knew that Bruce Willis played blues harmonica? Played blues harmonica with B.B. King and with Billy Preston. Uh, the, one of the things I love about blues music is the B3 organ. It's just such a beautiful, soulful instrument. And to hear Billy Preston playing the B3 organ and B.B. King and Bruce Wellis playing harmonica, it's kind of weird, this one white guy with these other two, like, what's going on here? But at any rate, it's really, really good. But that song so articulates this misdirected sense of security and the hidden face of God and the cry for mercy. And David said, when I cried out for mercy, I found God to be so faithful. Anger turned to favor. Joy came in the morning. Uh, Weeping replaced with gladness. Sackcloth replaced with ashes. God's restorative mercy. Stop. Let me just tell you what God did for me. And of course, one of the reasons why David is saying, stop and let me tell you what God has done for me is because the subtext is he can do the exact same thing for you. See, listen to my testimony, not to exalt me, but to know what God can do for you and then to have the result be exaltation of God, not only from my life, but from your life as well. You see, to kind of tie last week and this week together, when we lament, we lament with hope. Doesn't Paul say, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing? When we lament, as Paul also would say, when we are sorrowful, it's not as those who sorrow without any hope. We sorrow, but we have hope. We really do articulate those dark and negative emotions, but we do so in this remarkable way because we have hope. We have hope that joy is going to come in the morning and I can guarantee you it will because the grandest of all reversals is only hinted at in this text and that's when God raised Jesus from the dead. You see, one, I, I've, I, I know I've told you at some point or other one of my favorite movies is uh, Princess Bride. Uh, and it, it, who's seen it? Okay, who has seen it but won't admit it? The, the Billy Crystal scene, Miracle Max, when he lifts up his hand and he says, he's not dead, he's just mostly dead. You see, in the Apostles' Creed, we say Jesus was not mostly dead. He was crucified, buried, descended into hell. We're saying he was dead, dead, not just mostly dead. But God raised him from the dead. God's power. Paul says that 
that God has, in, God has an, a, a power that can't be compared to anything in Ephesians chapter 2. I want to tell you about God's incomparably great power. I love what he says next. Anybody know? It's like. You got it. It's like. I want to tell you about God's power that's not like anything. It's like. And what's it like? What's the grandest thing that Paul can talk about to give us a hint of what God's power is like? He says it's like the working of his mighty strength when he raised Jesus Christ from the dead. The grandest demonstration of the power of God in creation are not these wonderful electrical storms that we get here in central Florida in the summer, as grand as they are. They pale in comparison because, you see, um, uh, not Wiley, help me, what's his name? Wesley. Wesley wasn't dead. And the, the, the chocolate pill that Miracle Max gave him that restored him. Nothing. Jesus was dead, dead. The power of God that raised him from the dead. And Paul says that power is the power that is, work at, is at work in you. His incomparably great power at work in... That's why. That's why when we lament, we lament with hope. That's why when we lament, our hope comes to expression in that cry for the mercy of God. Believing that the mercy of God is just around the corner. And it is. This beautiful language of reversal uh, that is so powerful uh, in this psalm. His anger lasts for a moment, but his favor a lifetime. It has to be. God will reverse your circumstances. Weeping may remain for a night, but I guarantee you the joy is coming in the morning. Now, I can't tell you that that's 18 hours from now or 18 days from now or 18 months or years. But in that great getting up morning, fare thee well, fare thee well. The day of resurrection will come. The day when you will be able to sing the grandest song of thanksgiving ever sung. Because you will have seen how God has now restored all of those misfortunes. Some of it he's going to do tomorrow. And some in a week and some in a month. But if in his own inscrutable wisdom he chooses to wait till you get to the other side. The weeping will no longer be there. It will just be joy. Rejoicing will come in the morning. It has to. Because on that first Easter morning, when the sun was coming up, the caverns of the deep opened up to give birth to a resurrected Savior with the restorative mercy of God in his wings. And so you have hope, hope in the mercy of God. Joy comes in the morning. And so as God, as God reverses your circumstances, remember not only that you sang the song of thanksgiving, but remember 
to say to those around you, stop and let me tell you. And maybe the elders need to find a way to make this happen publicly as part of our corporate worship. Stop and let me tell you what the Lord has done for me. And if you're still waiting, remember the mercy of God. Mercy there was great and grace was free. Your God is a merciful God and you will find that the night will pass and the joy of the morning will come. It has to because Jesus has been raised from the dead. Let's pray.